Well, hey, again, if you would please turn open to Nehemiah chapter 6. I really appreciate uh, the word that Kerr brought a couple weeks ago on Nehemiah 4 and then Sean last week with Nehemiah 5. Uh, I, I really, I just really enjoy their preaching gift. And I think it blesses, it blesses me. Uh, I think it blesses the church. It builds the church. Uh, and so I, I, I've always told Sean, I never tire of hearing him talk about mercy. I just, it just, it, it excites me. And I, I still, um, it's still refreshing even to hear. Because Sean and I have been friends a long time. And so I knew it, it, it stirs in him in a unique way that just when I get around it, I'm like, all right, we've got to figure something out mercifully. We've got to figure something out. So I just appreciate these guys uh, and their service to the church and the pulpit. All right, Nehemiah 6. As we go through our, our series in this book, maybe sometimes you go, you're reading the Old Testament books and it just seems weird. It seems what is going on and why. But I hope today <clears throat> that it can help us understand that uh, even, even the things that were happening hundreds of years ago, thousands for us, but even before Christ, this is hundreds of years before Christ, um, it's all pointing toward Jesus. It's pointing toward who he would be as our Savior, our Messiah. So let's look at Nehemiah 6. You can follow as I read the chapter. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshub the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built a wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem said to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking... Their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. And when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Metatabal, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Such... Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, excuse me, <coughs> that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. 
And so they gave me a bad name in order to taunt me. So they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara. And his son, Jehoinan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the daughter of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. The Holy Spirit, help us understand and be, be faith in the preaching of your word. Amen. Uh, you know, sometimes there, there are conspiracy theories that leave us wanting more. Like there's, there's more there. But this is a conspiracy theory where we know everything that's going on. We know everything that's happening. Clearly, there's a, conspira a conspiracy to take down Nehemiah uh, that, that the, the enemies are trying to thwart the work that Nehemiah is leading in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, but ultimately going against God himself. But before we break down things in the series, uh, in this chapter, let's, let's get caught up into our series at this point. We are seeking with this series in Nehemiah to build healthy spirituality as God's people in God's place experiencing God's presence. And these chapters, uh, you can think about it, they give us markers as to what healthy spirituality could resemble. And in a very real way, God is building our spirituality by providing healthy protection and security. He's, he's building uh, walls for us spiritually so we can experience him uh, through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And our faith in Jesus puts us in a place where God builds us into his presence. We see this in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Apostle Paul is saying, we see Jesus, and we become more like him. That's we see that glory, and we're becoming more like him. So we are seeing his presence, and we're being built up in his presence. Uh, Pastor Eric Mason, who pastors a church in Philadelphia, says this, As glory reflectors, through every tough experience, we grow in our ability to glorify God more expansively. We are being rebuilt just as Jerusalem was rebuilt. So we see uh, that, that what's happening in the Old Testament corresponds to what, what God is building in us. And what we looked at in chapter 1 was that there, uh, Nehemiah knew of an inferior fellowship. God's people were, the walls were broken down, the temple's unfinished, and so God's people in his place aren't experiencing his presence. But then he prays and he asks God to accomplish, <coughs> excuse me, Ask God to accomplish what God wants in that. An effective prayer. Prayer, think about this. Prayer is our experience of God's presence on this earth. It is, it is petition. We're asking God for things, but we see in the scriptures that God wants more 
of our relationship with him than simply just to ask him for stuff. We don't just visit him like we visit a Santa Claus lap. Okay, can I have this? Can I have this? I think I was a good boy, so please help me. But a lot of times we think of Jesus that way. We think of God that way. Well, he's going to bless us according to our effort, according to our work, whether it's been good or bad, and he's checking a list. And that's why Santa Claus has God-like qualities, because we think God is Santa Claus, that he's, he sees when we're sleeping and we're awake. That's God. God has those qualities, but our experience in prayer is our feeling, our, our understanding of who God is and welcoming us into his divine nature. Second Peter describes that. And then in chapter 2, we saw that there was, there was an evaluation where, where Nehemiah is going around and he's taking count of what needs to happen and how it needs to happen. So there's sincere evaluation in our lives. In chapter 3, there's a gospel work. Everybody's called to do something. Everybody within the community, in the family of God, is called to serve and to serve side by side. And then uh, chapter 4, we see there's a faithful confidence. Even though there's an attack coming... There's preparation, all right, everybody's with one hand, uh, they got a trowel because they're building the wall, but in the other there's a sword, but ultimately they're trusting that God is going to protect them. But there's a faithful confidence in the work. And then chapter 5 last week, we learned that there's a merciful preservation that goes on within the community. Uh, there was sacrifice, That two ways that Nehemiah sacrificed. One, remember, he took counsel within himself. He learned. Sean described that. He, we, we have to learn people around us within the body of Christ who understand how to serve because we want to preserve a unity. But something else that Nehemiah did is that he sacrificed. Uh, he sacrificed the governor's allowance. He sacrificed a whole bunch of stuff in order for the good of the community to bring it together, to keep it unified, to preserve through mercy. And then today, we see there's an honorable endurance that everyone is called to walk out. Now, when the enemies of God, God's people saw that their threats for the physical attack from chapter 4 had no success, they turned on the leader of God's people. They turned on... Uh, Nehemiah, and they conspired to attack his honor. They first sought to get him to desert the work. Come meet us, the plain of Ono. He says, oh no, I'm not going to do that because this is a great work. But then they try to get him to dishonor God by going into the temple. Nehemiah teaches us to endure in spiritual conspiracy and attack is to walk honorably. He maintains his integrity. He maintains his honor by trusting in God's vindication and not working to vindicate himself. We see first in the, the first big paragraph, there's, a, there's an attack on the great work. And it's coming specifically toward Nehemiah. The enemies grew frantic when they saw the work progressing. And now it's almost completed. So they mounted this last campaign of intimidation to seek to get Nehemiah off God's work. Maybe they thought that if they could get Nehemiah away from it, the people would just stop working because they thought, well, he's there. He's the one encouraging them and keeping morale high. Let's remove him from the equation. Maybe the work will stop. But they actually wanted to, Nehemiah said, they wanted to do him harm. They wanted to harm him, probably kill. Nicely put, they wanted to try to intimidate him enough to make him go back uh, to serve the king of Persia, or to Xerxes, but ultimately they probably wanted to kill him. They had had great success over the, the people in Jerusalem. 
They had control over them, these other Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. They had control. They were governors, and they, 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 everybody obeyed them. And Nehemiah comes in town, and they don't want to obey these guys anymore. They're following Nehemiah. Not only was he good at leading people to rebuild the wall, he was honorable. And whenever you can't pick on somebody's character, it's infuriating. So there's four secret letters. Four times they say, come and meet us. So there's a persistence in their pursuit and pressure of Nehemiah. And the enemies wanted to get Nehemiah secretly at first. Hey, let's just get him away so people will think that he left on his own and people won't rally against him. If they know if we kidnap him, then everybody's going to rally around him still. So we got to get him to come meet us. They they couldn't get him. They couldn't send him off packing. (coughs) So... I think a part of their deal is they want to regain this, this control, allegiance, cooperation with the people that Nehemiah is leading. So after those four letters don't work, secret letters, now there's an open letter. They're sending it as if uh, the paper boy is announcing the headlines as he's walking to deliver the message to Nehemiah. When they couldn't get him secretly, they went on to publicly defame him by ascribing motives to his actions. We know what you're really trying to do. You want to rebel. You want to set up yourself as king. We know what's happening. They sought to get the people now to turn on him for being hypocritical. He told them he was there for the wall, but the enemies said he wanted to be the king. So maybe this doubt and this insincerity, disingenuineness is maybe spread through the people. And these dishonorable men sought to bring dishonor upon Nehemiah to those in and around the city of Jerusalem. Maybe they wanted the the people just to question Nehemiah's sincerity. Is Is he really a good leader? What's he really want? What's he? What's he after? And they did this by assassinating his character. They tore him down. When, when they couldn't get the work to stop, they went to his character to defame him. See, that their, their accusations had a little twinge of truth, a little ring of truth, because Nehemiah really was looking for another king. Even though he served the Persian king, he was looking for another king. He was looking for the Messiah the one promised in Isaiah that would come as the suffering servant and establish himself upon all of the world as king of all glory. They made the mistake of thinking that Nehemiah, ascribing motive to him, you want to be the king. He's like, no, I don't want to be the king. But I do know that setting up these walls and in this temple, there's a king that's coming. And Nehemiah was looking for that king. So whenever, whenever there's character assassination, there's always like this ring of possible that could be possible. Yeah, I can see that. But it causes doubt in sincerity. What is Nehemiah's response? Nehemiah's understanding that he had a great work ahead of him. In verse 3, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why does he go there? Because he recognizes what God's called him to do is more important than what people are asking. Oh, how often do we need to be reminded of that? What God is calling us to do is more important than what people around us are asking from us. We get the two confused, don't we? 
because we feel this urgency and this busyness to meet all the needs around us and we get distracted and lose focus from what God's called us to do. What, what are we on mission to do? Are we doing it? Nehemiah knew what God wanted him to do. And he kept at it. And just like he pointed everybody in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 20, he says, God will fight for us. He's, he, put, he puts that on personal display now. God's going to fight for him. He's displaying the same trust and the same focus that he asked everybody a couple chapters ago. He, opened, he responds to the open letter with just one sentence. This is wrong, and you've made it up in your minds. That's it. Wouldn't we love just to have one response, one simple sentence end conflict in our lives? And it's usually what we want to say, don't want anybody else to say it to us. So. But he trusts the Lord. He doesn't keep on, keep on trying to, well, let me, let me tell you what you, he simply trusts the Lord. And he prays for strong hands. He didn't pray for strong hands to fight. It was like, God, give me strong hands right now because I'm getting ready. I got a couple lefts and an uppercut that I'd really like to give these people right now. So give me strong hands. That's not what he's asking. He's asking, God, this is a great work. And I recognize the great work. So empower me to continue with the great work, to continue on with it. He wants strong hands to finish that work and his focus is still on God and he didn't cave to the fear that was prowling around but ultimately, we have to recognize who the real enemy is. You know, Nehemiah shows us what Paul later wrote about in the Ephesians, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual principalities. A.W. Tozer said that New Testament principles have the greatest examples in the Old Testament. I think this, is, this chapter is uh, the what we see from Ephesians 6. The principle in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God and the battle that we fight, we see played out in Nehemiah 6. But Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. There's, there's a mission we're to be on. It's, we need to trust God for that. In verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Wait a minute. He doesn't say to be able to stand against people who irritate you. People who disagree with you. People who don't like you. But that's where we put it all. They're, they're more, they're louder in our lives than maybe the motivation behind them. That we understand. We, we know the conspiracy. There is a spiritual conspiracy to take every believer down. Every single one. And we know who's behind it, the devil himself. Paul continues, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's another enemy. And it's not the people that we're seeing. It's not the flesh and blood that we're interacting with. And, and in, in the midst of spiritual conflict, uh, we have to remember this in order to be able to, to gain a proper perspective on who might be coming against us to then say, God, this is bigger than just trying to win an argument or establish facts. This is about trusting you. There is a reality to spiritual conflict in the Christian life. And it doesn't go away once the wall is rebuilt. It keeps coming. The reason the wall is there 
is for us to have that shield of faith for the fiery darts of the enemy. There is a spiritual conspiracy to bring each and every one of us down. And the devil can't have those who've trusted Christ. He can't, I believe from Scripture, we see that he can't, once we have the Spirit dwelling in us, when we repent repent of our sins and we recognize how it put Jesus on the cross, and he suffered and died in our place, and and our sin was put on him, and we trust him for salvation, saying, you died in my place, then his righteousness gets placed on us. It's, It's marvelous, marvelous in the scriptures. I just said it so quickly, but man, it's so deep. And huge. His, our sin gets placed on him. His righteousness then gets placed on us. How? Because we did something? No, we trusted him. It's bizarre. Because that's how God does things. But when we recognize that his righteousness gets placed on us, what also happens? The Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us. God's very presence comes inside to make us alive with him to experience his presence. Another miracle of miracles. And when this happens... I don't think the Holy Spirit can then leave. We have a security in our faith that God, whom he has, Jesus said, I've got all the Father has given me, and I've lost not one of them. Jesus doesn't lose sheep like that. Even if the sheep, like us, we wander away. He says, no, you're still in the fold. But look, the Satan can't have those who've trusted Christ, but he can surely tempt us to nullify our experience of his presence in order for the gospel light to dim we have dimmable lights in your house. Like, he just wants to put the dimmer switch all the way down. I just don't want you being very bright. And I'd like to turn it off. I can't turn it off, but I'm just going to put that dimmer all the way down. And sometimes we, we give in to that because life is difficult. It's hard. Trials are hard. And we'd rather be distracted by something else. But we know... There is gospel power and there's gospel grace for us to walk in this life and not be outwitted by Satan. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. Again, the Apostle Paul. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs, his schemes. You know what his greatest tactic is? Fear. Fear of danger. Somebody's going to hurt me. Fear fear of shame. Somebody's going to shame me. We're afraid. We're fraidy cats. Yes, we are. You know why? Because after Adam and Eve sinned, they recognized that they were naked, shame. They went and sowed fig leaves trying to cover their shame. And that's what we try to do. We try to cover our shame in these weird man-made ways. And God comes in the cool of the garden. Adam, where are you? Uh, Went and hid. Did you eat of the tree? He said this. This is what Adam says to him. I was afraid. I recognized that I was naked. I was afraid of you, God. God doesn't bring that fear in. It's what he, it was Adam feels. So the devil's got already, that's the result of sin. So the devil just plays into that fear, just playing into the fear, giving us more opportunity to fear things. And fear, we know this, fear paralyzes our lives. It paralyzes our physical lives. It paralyzes our spiritual lives. It paralyzes us. It nullifies us. We don't believe the promises of God anymore. We don't believe that he really is going to be faithful. We slip into all all the temptations that Satan has been using for thousands of years. First with Eve, and then all the way with Jesus in the wilderness. It's the same temptations. Fear. 
But Nehemiah recognized the tactic of fear. Four times it said they wanted to make us afraid. Chapter 6, four times, make us afraid, make us afraid. But he recognizes the fear, and he asks God for strong hands to endure in the faith, in the work. So look, just in our spiritual conflict, we have to recognize who our real enemy is, but also recognize our own selfish attempts to respond when we're attacked. We need to avoid ascribing motive. You always do this. You meant this. We can get real convinced on what everybody else's motives are. But we have to be careful to not do that. Also, we need to avoid character assassination when somebody's wronged us. Well, we want to tear them down. If we feel teared down, torn down, teared, teared down. We feel torn down, we want to tear them down. And that's vicious. And it's vengeful. And God says this, that's my playground. You don't get to play there. There's a fence. You can't go on the other side of it. You trust me with that. And even if we have to wait, this is the hard part, even if we have to wait till we're with God in heaven to understand how his vindication is upon us because we're confused by it right now, he says, trust me, trust me, I'll vindicate you. But ultimately, if we have Christ, we don't need vindication, right? If we have Jesus from the presence of the Spirit inside of us, that fight is over. So no matter what attack comes on us, even from the devil himself, saying that we are to be ashamed and we are losers and we will never be lovable by God, bring it on, Satan, because I already have the Holy Spirit. I have Jesus. You're taunts. You're just... You're prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour, but the lion is more of it's a shadow on a wall of a little bitty creature like this, rather than the vicious, pompous Satan that wants to make us think he's bigger than he is. So we, we need to respond accordingly, like Nehemiah. We, we say, Lord, I just want to be faithful to you. That's what I want to do. I want to be faithful to you. No matter what the attack is, no matter what the character assassination coming upon me, I will not respond, respond in kind in that way. In the same way, I will trust you. But then the second paragraph, verse 10, we see there's a spiritual sabotage going on with Shemaiah. When the enemies couldn't get Nehemiah to budge, they turned the attack uh, on his character through trying to get a spiritual trap. Shem, uh, Shemaiah is a prophet, tried to get Nehemiah to seek refuge with him in the temple. Come on, let's go to the temple. They're trying to kill you. What's Nehemiah say? Look, should one, there's a a work going on. Should I? Should I at night? Uh, Should I not leave this work? And then he says this. Should such a man as I run away? And then look at verse 11. And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. What's he talking about? Nehemiah understands that as his role, he's not a priest. There were very, everybody, the priestly tribe, Levi, they were the ones that cared for the temple. The high priest was the only one that could go into the innermost part of the temple. And it seems as such that Shemaiah is saying, let's go into the Holy of Holies because that's where you'll be safe. Nehemiah recognizes, no, I'll actually be dishonoring God if I go in because I'm not a priest. I'm not allowed in there. He knows his place. He knows his lane, and he stays in it. They wanted to taunt him in verse 13. 
he says. But this, that word taunt is discredit. They wanted to catch him doing something against God, like the enemies of Daniel. Remember, they said, we can't get him in anything, so we're going to have to get him uh, breaking a rule by how he honors God. So they set up this weird thing about the prayer. Nobody could pray except Darius. Daniel says, nope. I'm going to pray because God is, is my God and I'm going to honor him. Now they want to, and the friends came and discredited Daniel. Now they want to discredit Nehemiah as well. And the prophet, you find out, Shemaiah was bought off by the enemies. And there was a prophetess as well, uh, Noadiah in verse 14. She seems to be bought off. And then look, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So there's a people who should have been spiritually supporting Nehemiah and his work are doing just the opposite. They're seeking to distract him because of their own selfish gain, their own selfish motives. This is a targeted conspiracy to bring Nehemiah down, first physically, but then spiritually. And we even read in verses 17 through 19 that there were people close to Nehemiah, the nobles, the, who, who were betraying him, passing word on to Tobiah and bringing Tobiah's word back. And they're, they're trying to tell Nehemiah, look, Tobiah's a really good dude. I mean, I think you give him a bad rap. I mean, he really wants what's best for everybody. I think we should just come and sit down. And, but Nehemiah recognized that his compromise. They were choosing their social status over God's great work that he was accomplishing. And we have to recognize in this story that Nehemiah is not some (coughs) lone example of what happens when you try to serve God. We may be feeling your own identification in things that you've experienced in your life or are presently experiencing that, that feel like, I think this is what Nehemiah was going through. This sounds similar in my own heart, but ultimately... Nehemiah was not alone in his experience because he's actually foreshadowing the king of Judah that really would come, because that he was looking for. Remember, he's, he's foreshadowing what Jesus went through. Jesus' enemies sought to kill him physically, but they couldn't get it. And they wanted to kill, every, they wanted to kill him so the religious leaders could regain control over the people. Jesus' enemies sought to openly defame and dishonor him among the people coming to him when he was teaching with different questions to try to trap him. Jesus' enemies paid those close to him to turn on him. And Jesus' enemies eventually made a false witness about him regarding the temple. No matter how intricate or involved the spiritual conspiracy or conflict that we face, Jesus knows deeper what's going on. And and what I love about thinking through this is that Nehemiah, even though he's, he's trying to maintain his integrity and his honor, I think he was trusting the Messiah, but we have a greater promise now. If we have Jesus, if we have his righteousness, we don't have to seek our vindication. We, we don't have to be afraid of the conflict tearing us down because... God doesn't see us when he looks at us. He sees Jesus. Now, uh, let, me, let me rework that. <laughs> it's not like, where's Jeff? I just see Jesus. Where's Jeff? Well, yeah, we wish. But 
he sees, think about it this way. My image before God, Jesus in me, becomes something much more glorious and miraculous, that God sees me, but he sees Jesus in me. He sees his adopted son that he's never going to leave or forsake. That's what we rest in. That's what Nehemiah, I don't think, fully understood, that we now can understand that Jesus went through it all in order to be with us in the fire, to be with us in the flood and in the valley. In the last paragraph, verse 15, through the end of the chapter, we see that God gets the glory. And I love this. Nehemiah endured, and God got the glory for the work. Exactly what Nehemiah was hoping for, exactly what he was praying for, exactly what he was working for. They finished the wall. This is a big deal. They finished the wall in 52 days. They started in August and they finished in October. Remember, this is thousands of years ago. Now, we see things go up now because it's got heavy machinery. It's got a bunch of people. You know, you always have, my wife teases me all the time because when I'm doing a project around the house, I show up with a new tool. She's like, well, you need another tool? It's like, yeah, because this tool does exactly this. Otherwise, I'd have to use three different tools, but I got this tool to be able to... We have those abilities. They didn't. They had to fashion things the old-fashioned way. But yet, God was upon them, and they finished it in under three months. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. But what happened when they did that is that God did things in such a way that reserved glory for himself, and he does that with our salvation. Remember in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. What? So that no one may boast. God does things for his glory. He's not some egomaniacal fly off the handle God. He's a humble God. That's what he shows us. By by being born as a baby, dependent on the very uh, creation that he sustains through his power and his breath. He's a humble God. But he does things in ways that reserve glory for himself. God turns, and, and, and in doing this, he turns the motives and the actions of the enemies on their own heads. We see that, look, now they, for they perceive that the work, oh, 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 uh, look at verse 16, when the enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. That means this, they went, oh, we were really wrong about this. Nehemiah didn't have to tell them. He told them once, no, you're making this up. It's, it's, it's in your own minds. You're inventing this. But ultimately, God's the one that said, I did this work. And they all knew it. So they weren't looking at Nehemiah anymore. They were looking at God. And God said, I did this work. Look at my glory that it's happened. And their own self-perception was corrected. And that's what we struggle with. We want people to change their minds about us, right? If there's a conflict, we want to, you know, I need to explain something to you. I need to make sure you. Nehemiah entrusted himself to the Lord and God's the one that had the last word. And all of them went from proud to humble. They didn't trust that humility. I don't think was a trust in God's sovereignty. They just recognized, yeah, God did that. And that's what we want. So we ask God to strengthen our hands and we focus on God's will for us. What's God's will for you? What are you called to do? 
Now remember, you're, you're called to be a disciple. You might work in a particular category, and that's where your discipleship uh, gets displayed. That's where the, the dimmer switch gets turned up because you want the light of Jesus to go through you. But listen, we are all called to be disciples and to spread that light. So, we don't want to get preoccupied with spiritual conflict as if the devil's around every corner. But when, you, when it happens, we recognize, ah, it's something bigger going on. And if it's something bigger, I need to trust God because, listen, we want to endure honorably for the cause and the work of God being accomplished through us. We want to see Jesus and be transformed into one degree of glory to the next as the Spirit illuminates and shines through us. So there's a great work. Church has a great work. Let's keep up to that work. We will uh, conclude with communion this morning. And this is why. Uh, because the greatest conflict of our lives has been won. Right? We, we are in our sin, separated from God. And Jesus, with this meal, celebrates that he's broken so we don't have to be. And there's a, there's a new covenant that welcomes us into God forever. So we don't have to fight. We don't have to fight with God. We don't have to fight with people. God has accomplished. He has won the greatest battle of our souls to win us to himself. Amen. All right, if you would, you can uh, just come down the center aisle and take the elements back with you to your seat and we'll take the elements together. Kate, you're going to come up.
learned from scripture that on the night that Jesus was to be handed over to the religious rulers and then the governing officials betrayed paid by by somebody close to him that he welcomed in ministry paid off to betray him That wasn't the biggest issue that Jesus was facing. He took the bread and the scripture says he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said this, this is my body which is broken for you. And he said, take it and eat it. There's a few different experiences and symbols going on there. One, it's broken in our place but then it's in us as the community of God it's a picture that he took our punishment so we wouldn't have to but what he gives us is access to his love and literally inside of us Ezekiel 36 says that there's a heart of stone that's in everybody and God takes that out and puts in a heart of flesh it's a picture of his spirit coming inside of us making us alive in him so when Jesus' body was broken that was the biggest battle and he took it for us let's remember as we eat the bread when supper had ended Jesus took a cup and he said this is the cup of my blood which is spilled for you but he says this cup now represents a change in our relationship with God when we receive what Jesus did for us on the cross through the symbol of the broken bread we now enter into a new covenant Jesus said a new type of relating with God where he says this He'll never turn away from doing good to us. So no matter how often we're tempted to think that God's not paying attention or he's absent somehow in our lives, he's never failed his promise to be with us and to do good, to see his glory in everything. So as we take the cup, we remember we have this new relationship with God that we celebrate. Let's take the cup. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for establishing a new relationship with us through your blood. And God, we want to live for your glory. And that's what we want. We want to be committed to the great work that you're doing in our lives. And we want to see that work come to completion. Trusting that you are the one in control but, but Lord, you're, you're working things in ways that co-op, our cooperation with you is another journey and another step to seeing how great you really are. So Lord, would you please have your way in us. We love you. In Jesus' name. This uh, just a commission for us to think about in Philippians chapter two. This came to mind as I was praying.
Apostle Paul again says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but also more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not the afraid thing, the awe. Wow, God, you're big, and this is a great work you've called me to. Listen, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So our commission is go in the pleasure of the Lord. Amen. 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 God bless you.